welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 29 of the Madden America podcast. This week we interview Kelly Folkrod. Kelly is the owner of the Organic Mental Health Center. She is a therapist, yoga teacher, and mental health paradigm shifter based in Austin, Texas. For the past 15 years, Kelly has worked in the mental health field and practiced yoga. She has been integrating yoga and the healing arts into traditional psychotherapy for over eight years and is passionate about offering holistic mental health treatment options. With many years' experience in an academic research setting, Kelly bridges the gap between science and spirituality. Kelly offers individual, couples, and group psychotherapy services in addition to yoga therapy sessions, workshops, and retreats. Kelly, thank you so much for talking with me today for the Madden America podcast. To start, I wanted to ask a little about you and what led to your work in alternative and holistic health. Thank you. Yeah, I'd love to share a little bit about my career path and and what's led me to where I am today. So I am a psychotherapist, yoga teacher, and what I what I call myself as a holistic healer, located in Austin, Texas. And um, my practice is primarily supporting perinatal mental health. Uh, so I work primarily with pregnant and postpartum women, um, offering them holistic approaches to psychological treatments. Um, I also work with combination of yoga therapy and talk therapy to support people with depression and anxiety who are looking for alternatives to pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. So I quite routinely offer groups and workshops for um, yoga for depression, yoga for your mental health, um, as a way to, to really just be a beacon of alternatives because it became very clear to me that uh, once I really got into working into the mental health industry that people are hungry for alternatives, but there are none. And so people are going to continue to go to mainstream medicine because, just simply because there aren't any other options. And how my journey began, so I have been working in the mental health field for 15 years now. Um, and it's kind of interesting that I was studying psychology as an undergrad at the University of Texas. And I also pretty quickly started working in a in a cognitive neuroscience lab as a freshman in my undergrad. So I started doing clinical research and academic research uh, with psychology pretty early on in my career, uh, really just to pay, <laughs> pay for help pay for college. Um, so I, I, I found the rigors of academic research to be pretty stressful. I, I also found, you know, I was working in a neuroscience lab, and so we were studying rats. We were slicing up rat brains, right? And, like, I have a really sweet spot in my heart for animals, but I also profoundly love science. And so I just I started finding this conflict within me of I'm very drawn to psychology and understanding the human psyche. I don't really like how we go about studying this. <laughs> um, and so I, that kind of led me to the path of yoga early on in my in my psychology studies. It was actually, you know, understanding how modern psychology functions 
being drawn to that, but also feeling like that wasn't enough for me, even as a, a psychology freshman. And so, you know, in Austin, Texas, I am so lucky to live in this city where it is, there's just a mecca of, of really amazing yoga teachers here. And, you know, found a teacher, started a consistent yoga practice. And that, you know, really informed not only me being a calmer person in, in studying, but also kind of opened up my eyes and my mind to how modern psychology neglects the body in the treatment process. Um, fast forward, I don't know, five or six years, I'm, I've completed my master's degree in clinical psychology, you know, have been doing a consistent yoga and meditation practice, um, and so, you know, at this point, I've been studying yoga and meditation for 15 years as well. So just as long as I've been in the, working in the mental health field is how long I've needed to, to do yoga. <laughs> and so after I graduated from my master's program, I, I was really hesitant to the idea of becoming a therapist. I was very resistant to that. Um, I had many mentors and supervisors tell me that I would be fantastic at it. But I didn't really subscribe to or value the the model that America at least presents us of mental health treatments. It never resonated with me. I always felt like it was quite narcissistic and egotistical uh, to only focus on the ego. <laughs> it just didn't work for me. And so I really resisted becoming a therapist. And I, because I had done clinical research trials throughout my undergrad and graduate um, work, I had, you know, published many journal articles, book book chapters on research uh, that I had been doing. I decided that I would just go and get a research job after um, after I completed my master's degree. And so I was working at a hospital in the trauma services department and doing um, doing research trials, and that felt. I felt like I was contributing more to to the mental health field by just researching it than actually, you know, participating in a modality that didn't resonate with me. Um, and so I did that for a few years. Lo I love the research process. Um, eventually, and I, I do kind of feel a little bit dirty about admitting this, but eventually I did work for one year in a um, inpatient psychiatric hospital where I was a research coordinator for, for depression drugs coming to market. And so we, you know, they would fly me to different states and put me up in really nice hotels and, and feed me all this food, all to be educated by the pharmaceutical industry about these drugs. And this was actually really before I kind of woke up to the truth about what's happening in the pharmaceutical industry and the mental health industry in America. Um, I was still kind of a believer in the medical model at this point when I was obviously when I was working for the the drug company. But what what really opened my eyes, this is where it kind of started to shift for me in a real profound way was, you know, I was recruiting these depressed people. We were studying them and following them for three months. And then, you know, with an experimental drug that was not FDA approved. And then we were just sending them on their merry way with nothing. You can't have the rest of the, this medicine. This is not FDA approved. So once the study's over, you're what? You just, you're on your own again. And that troubled me. I didn't, 
I did not, I was not aware because even though I had been doing research for many years, I was not aware that the drug companies only studied these drugs for three months and then had no long-term research studies. That, that kind of shook me to my core and really started opening my eyes to the lack of scientific evidence we have about these medications. And that, in fact, most of the people, no, all of the people that are on these drugs are guinea pigs. And at that time, you know, because I had been so far down the yoga path, I started getting exposed to other healing modalities, um, different Eastern um, earth-based traditions of approaching mental illness, but from a radically different perspective that America takes. And so I had, you know, nothing short of what I describe as, as a spiritual awakening in, in 2013. And this, uh, this really kind of informed my career path. Um, I, you know, I think that word spiritual awakening gets thrown around quite frequently. And I think there's a lot of um, mystery around that term. But for me, it was like someone flipped a switch <laughs> and I was fully in my body for the first time in my whole life. You know, I was in my, my early thirties and I finally like felt like my essence was truly online. And it was around that time that someone, um, actually I think it was, I was exposed to Dr. Kelly Brogan's work. Yeah. This was early 2013 when she was just kind of entering the scene and she had mentioned Dr. Peter Bruggen's work. I, I read one of his books, devoured it, I just totally transformed my perception of mental health, mental illness, um, what we're doing to people in this country with these medications. I read every book he had and all of the other renegade psychiatrists I could, uh, you know, get my hands on their books. I just went through this phase of like really unlearning everything I had learned in graduate school and relearning this new perspective. And, and I went through kind of a dark night of the soul myself when I kind of woke up to the truth, because up until this point, you know, I had been working after I finished working at the inpatient psych hospital, I had started working clinically with people and I had been referring people to psychiatrists. And, you know, I, I really struggled with guilt. <laughs> um, and I also, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm still paying on my student loans, right? I have not even paid off all this education that I'm unlearning that, that, that's like, you know, this deconditioning process that I'm going through, uh, it was very isolating and lonely and scary because I was like, I don't think I can participate in this. I don't think that I can play in this arena in good conscience. It, this is, does not, you know, I have a value system and like, I don't, I think people are being lied to and deceived. And I don't know if I can participate in the mental health field in America. And I, I had already had my, I'd already been a yoga teacher. I've been a registered yoga teacher for eight years now. Yeah. Eight years. And so I really went through this internal process of like, I think I'm going to not be a therapist or a clinical researcher. I think I'm going to abandon all of it. Uh, you know, I had my license as a mental health professional at that time. I was like, I'm going to let my license lapse. I just, I'm out. <laughs> and someone, you know, a mentor of mine was like, look, Kelly, I hear what you're saying, but the only way you're going to change the system is to be in the system. 
And at this point, I mean, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but at this point I was in a private practice setting, you know, seeing clients individually. And at this point I just made a conscious effort to change the way I practice. And so it's a slippery slope to to practice outside of the realms of what is deemed the gold standard. And I, you know, it's not something that um, I necessarily broadcast or advertise or, or whatnot. I, I have found that word of mouth, you know, I, I am very busy. I, I stay very, very busy. And it's, it's not because I'm really hustling or marketing my services. It's, it's word of mouth. And once people, people hear that there's someone offering alternatives, it's like people are, the masses just come because people are hungry for, for different, different approaches. So thank you, Kelly. What strikes me as really powerful about that is that you've seen the mental health industry and the pharmaceutical industry from the inside. You've been part of that world, but took a conscious effort to step away from that and look deeply into alternatives. So you must intrinsically understand when people come to you how they've been treated. That must be very powerful. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And Kelly, you mentioned while you were talking there about your particular interest in yoga, and also that modern psychiatry seems to treat things of the body as not worth their time, and they seem to focus almost exclusively on the brain chemical aspects. But from looking at your website, I was fascinated to read about the real science and evidence that supports the use of yoga as an intervention for mental health challenges. So I just wondered if you could share with us your experiences of using yoga to help and support those that may be struggling with mental health difficulties. So this is like probably one of the most passionate topics of mine. So I've been leading yoga for mental health groups, specifically what I, what I have been calling them um, is yoga for depression for the past um, six years now. And there is no protocol out there uh, to tell you exactly how to combine, you know, more traditional talk therapy approaches with yoga. So in some ways, I'm kind of one of the pioneers of trying to figure out how, how we combine these two modalities. Um, but we, one of my criticisms with Western medicine is that we compartmentalize the psyche. So we say, okay, I'm going to focus just on your childhood or just on your emotions, just on your behavior. And I, I think that's only related to your nervous system and your brain. And so that's one way that psychiatry compartmentalizes it. But psychology does this too, because the, a talk therapist, right, or a psychologist is only going to fixate on your story. Tell me what's wrong. Tell me your problems. Tell me, you know, what your parents did to you, right? It, it's only focusing on your story. And ego tells stories. That is the job of ego. We're never, ever going to get rid of our ego. That it, it, We need it to be a human. Um, however. I know personally and professionally that you cannot heal the ego with the ego, period. That doesn't work. You cannot he have long-lasting healing by talking about trauma. That That is not how we move trauma from the nervous system. That is stinking thinking. It's, it's just incorrect. And it's a great business model to keep people in your therapy chair for decades. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. My goal with people is to empower them to be their own healer and to not need me. And that's not how most therapists approach this. A lot of therapists are wounded healers 
who have a need for to be needed. And I'm not going to go down that path too much, but um, I just, I feel like I can be critical because I have this insider's perspective. And so what I see in my colleagues and, and in, in modern psychology happening is we neglect the body. And the body, everything that's happening from your chin down, <laughs> that's where the healing is. That's where the wisdom is. That's where your intuition is. But most people are disconnected from their body. They are stuck in their head. Mm. They intellectualize their emotions. If I, so here's an example. Someone's sitting in, so I still have a couch. I also have a yoga studio where I practice, where it, my, my therapy office is in a yoga studio. So people have the option to sit on a couch or get on the mat or both. And so when I'm meeting someone for the first time, we sit on the couch to just to check in. And I am listening to their body more than I'm listening to their story because their body doesn't lie. Their body isn't in a state of denial of the shadow. Their body tells the truth. <laughs> you know, the, the power of denial, it is one of the most powerful forces of our humanity, denial in the unconscious, right? If it was unconscious, you wouldn't need a therapist to kind of guide you to, to seeing the truth. Uh, but the body holds the score. And in my opinion, mental illness is unhealed trauma. Bipolar, psychosis, depression, anxiety, any other flavor of personality disorder you want to throw at a label is trauma. Okay? And trauma, we are animals. <laughs> We are animals and we look to models of animals in the wild of how they deal with trauma. Birds don't fly around with PTSD. They don't. Bird <laughs> animals of prey aren't walking around thinking they're horrible animals or that they should kill themselves. That doesn't happen to animals. Why? Uh, because they instinctually know how to discharge trauma from their nervous system. They don't have an ego that gets in the way of saying, oh, that was really scary. I'm going to shut down. And so they instinctually, uh, predators about to attack a prey, right? The, the body has three options, fight, flight, freeze. The last ditch effort when you're about to die or something so overwhelming to your psyche is freeze. That's also known as depression, yeah. right? And, and a drawing in of all the internal resources because, because you're really about to die. Well, that energy of that drawing in of everything that energy doesn't, it doesn't just go away on its own. The way that nature designed it was that once the predator leaves, if you're still alive, you tremble and shake to discharge that overwhelming energy from your nervous system. Mm -hmm. Trembling and shaking is related to what your fight or flight muscles would have done when it was trying to fight or flee that, that scary situation. So running like hell or punching someone in the face, right? What that energy of punching someone or running, that's that energy that gets stuck in the nervous system. And that makes people crazy. You're not supposed to hold that energy for decades. But we live in a society, don't we, where expressing our feelings is frowned on. Yes. And especially really big, overwhelming, traumatic energy. It looks weird. Yeah. It looks odd. And our culture doesn't have ceremony and ritual around that like tribal cultures do. Um, okay, so I could go on. <laughs> That's kind of a nutshell. Um, and also to say that this marriage of yoga and psychology works. I, I see it every single day in the work that I do. People, 
I like, man, are are other therapists doing this? Other other therapists need to like to bridge the gap here and like bring these two modalities together because it just makes so much more sense to to move the energy out of the nervous system and then get on with why you were born, why you're here. So Kelly, when you're leading a class in yoga, are the participants interested in the link between the physical and the mental aspects of mental health? Because when I went to see my own psychiatrist, I went with a bunch of emotional problems and a bunch of physical issues. And she prescribed something which had an effect on my brain, but my physical issues were barely touched on. So I just wondered if your students were interested in the link between physical and emotional health and well-being. Yes. People once, and, and, and so here's, here's a quote my teacher, uh, one of my teachers told me, and, um, and I love it. It's, it's called, it's, it says, healing first, understanding later. So our ego wants to understand, right? It wants to <laughs> rationalize healing. And sometimes healing, you can't intellectualize it. You have to feel it intuitively. And that, you know, that is the issue, I think, with, with America uh, and the UK to some degree, right? Yeah. Uh, is that we're in this age of reason and logic and science, which I love science, don't get me wrong, but we neglect the intuition. And um, to, to a fault that I think that a lot of people are led down the path of, of psychiatry at the expense of listening to their own body's intuition. We bow down to the expert at the expense of what our body is trying to communicate with us. And so uh, for me, it's like I'm going to lead you into the yoga experience and let you feel that in your body. Then we can talk about what just happened, <laughs> you know, and so for me, because I've studied this and, and, you know, written and authored actual manuscripts, you, you looking at and using yoga for mental health, uh, the benefits are massive. Uh, we're still kind of uncovering how yoga changes your physiology, but one of the main, um, concepts that I use to kind of explain the power of, of yoga is the vagus nerve. And so the vagus nerve, right, for any of those listening that, that aren't familiar with it, is the largest cranial nerve that starts at the brainstem and has nerve endings that run all the way through the heart, all the way down to your gut. So this is profound. Interestingly, I learned about the vagus nerve in my yoga teacher training, not in my graduate psychology work. <laughs> and I'm not that old. It's been, I'm 36. I, it's been 10 years since I've been out of grad school. So the fact that like yoga taught me this is interesting and noteworthy. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, so it's the information superhighway, this nerve that literally connects our brain to our gut. Um, I was also taught in grad school that the brain and, you know, studying neuroanatomy, that was where the seat of consciousness was. And now on my own continuing education, I know that it's actually in the enteric nervous system, the gut. I think that's the first brain, and I think the second brain is our brain. <laughs> uh, what you put in your mouth has a profound, incredibly important role on your mood. Most Americans don't want to hear that. Um, but suffice it to say, with what's happening in our gut happens and shows up in our behavior and our mood. And so when we do things like extending the exhalation or... or um, taking really deep, conscious, aware breaths, 
holding your body in a posture of relaxation, um, these things stimulate the vagus nerve. And when we strengthen vagal tone, we get a host of positive um, benefits. We get increases in GABA in the brain. We get um, increases in heart rate variability. We get lower blood pressure. We get a sense of calm. We get a quietening of the ego. I mean, (laughs) there are meditation studies coming out that show a consistent meditation practice Now, I know this sounds crazy and outlandish, but a consistent meditation practice has now been shown to change your DNA. Closing your eyes and being quiet, which is one of the hardest things to do in a culture that has screens and social media shoved down your throat on a minute-by-minute basis, closing your eyes and going inwards can change your DNA, okay? But getting busy people to do that is hard. It is, and when you try yourself and find out how difficult it is, you rapidly realize how little time we spend actually living in the present moment without distractions. And and so uh, part of the work that I do is trying to make meditation a meditation practice attainable. Yep. So one, meditation is contraindicated for someone with high anxiety, okay? Because if I ask a client with, who has really big fears to sit with their thoughts, guess what they're going to get? Inundated and flooded with fear. And that's not healing. So um, we have to be mindful about how we even approach meditation. Meditation and yoga is dose dependent. Mm. You cannot do it once and be like, oh, that didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. Right? It's just like a pharmaceutical. You have to take it every day Mm. consistently. And that's the piece where I lose people. Because people want quick fixes. (laughs) It's our culture breeds that and it, you know, to a large degree, our culture breeds the pharmaceutical industry. It's not just big pharma. We ask for it because we don't want to put in the time and the effort and the discipline that it takes to heal yourself. We want a quick fix. So when I'm trying, when someone comes to me and they're like, look, I really want to meditate. I just don't know how, how do I start? I say, you start very small. You you make the bar so low that you cannot fail. So that means two to three minutes a day of a guided meditation. Not you sitting with your own mind, but someone, you know, and I have plenty of free, free MP3s if anybody wants them from me. I'm happy to share those with you. Uh, of someone guiding you how to scan your body, how to be embodied, and how to sit with uncomfortable sensations that arise three minutes a day if you don't have three minutes a day you really need to look at your lifestyle because three minutes a day to calm your mind without side effects it's free (laughs) you know i it's and the truth is it's like you you can't force somebody to heal like they have to want it and they have to do it themselves i think you're absolutely right and it's incredible to witness how much time people are willing to give to social media and yet how difficult it is to get them to realize that they may be neglecting their own bodies and the connection between the mind and the body and i i think we are addicted to busyness because we're so terrified we're so conditioned to avoid negative emotions mm that we keep ourselves so busy, we check our Facebook, we check our Instagram, right? We're checking constantly so that we don't have to sit with what we're running from 
And the truth is, is that your medicine, your healing lives on the other side of that which you are resisting. And if you run from it your whole life, you're never going <laughs> to you're gonna find the gifts that are hiding behind your misery. Absolutely. That's very powerful. Kelly, if it's okay, I wondered if we could move on to talk about another area that I think is very important to you, and that's perinatal depression. Certainly in the US, the UK and elsewhere, there's wide recognition of how difficult a process becoming parents can be, predominantly, of course, for the mother, but for the father too. And I myself struggled to adapt to those changes when my daughter came along. But in debates that you see, whenever childbirth and depression are talked about together, it's usually associated with medication supposedly fixing the problem. There's very little discussion of alternative ways of helping parents come to terms with what's probably one of the most fundamental changes that a person can experience in life. So I just wondered if you could help me understand your own insights into the changes that occur around parenthood. Yes, and thank you for sharing about yours. I know that my husband and I went through similar um, radical transformation in consciousness. And, you know, and that, that's what I think, that's the conversation I start with any woman that shows up in my office is that, um, you're going through an identity crisis. You're no longer the same woman or man that you were before you became a parent. You have to grieve the loss of your freedom (laughs) of your old identity. And, and part of what you're feeling is totally appropriate to the radical lifestyle change that's being asked of you. Um, that coupled with the fact that, you know, I'm real big on, I'm a big criticizer, at least of the American culture. Mm. I do not value the value system of America. I love the the country that I live in, I respect it, but I think that we have very dysfunctional values right now. And I think that these values are killing us. I think they're making parenting very hard because we have lost community. We've lost our tribe. We've lost aunts and uncles living in close proximity to us. And it's too much to ask one man and one woman or two women and two men to raise a baby in isolation. That is not how nature designed our bodies. (laughs) In tribal cultures, there are four grown adults who are responsible for every infant that's born. Four who, who are connected and attuned to that infant until it reaches adolescence. Okay? Four. And there are also accessory people around those four main caregivers. So that in and of itself shows our model right? Then we have um, what I see, because 80% of my clients are are pregnant or postpartum, what I see is that women go to their doctors, their OBGYNs, and they say, hey, I'm not feeling like myself. Um, And 50 milligrams of Zoloft is the remedy. There's no conversation about your own childhood and any trauma that might have happened to you during your childhood. There's absolutely no conversation about hormones, which I'm about to get into, which are profound uh, psychiatric pretenders. Um, And there's no conversation about social support. Okay. And so this is, this is the, the heart of how I practice holistically is I'm not just looking at a woman's psyche. I'm looking at her whole body, her, her level of social support, her endocrine system, because a woman's body goes through massive hormonal shifts to make a baby. 
A lot of women feel really good during pregnancy and awful in the postpartum period. And I, you know, I had a pretty profound, amazing, scary hormonal shift postpartum. And I didn't know, I was not educated that because I took hormonal birth control pills for a decade, trying not to get pregnant while I was, you know, furthering my career, like a lot of modern women do, that uh, 10 years of tricking your body hormonally (laughs) is going to really alter your endocrine system and your hormones. Uh, Did not know that wasn't on my radar because no one had ever had a conversation with me about how my hormones worked. Um, And so a woman's body is at the very highest levels of progesterone and estrogen um, the week before they deliver. 48 to 72 hours after delivery, a woman's hormones, progesterone, estrogen, go to the very lowest they've ever been in her whole life. And that dramatic shift can be crazy-making for a lot of women. Now, is the remedy for that an SSRI? No, it's not. And furthermore, an SSRI can exacerbate underlying thyroid conditions, which postpartum thyroiditis is quite common, quite misdiagnosed, quite overlooked. I had Hashimoto's disease after I had my baby. I struggled with autoimmune symptoms for close to nine months postpartum. Everyone kept telling me I had postpartum depression. I finally went to an acupuncturist of all people. I went to all these different doctors. Everyone kept throwing SSRIs. Everyone kept saying, you're depressed. Uh, finally, an acupuncturist was like, hey, have you had any blood work to look at your thyroid? Maybe you've got a thyroid condition. <laughs> Turns out I did. Uh, <laughs> so that really opened my eyes and shifted how I practiced. Really went into studying the female hormone system, which I do think gets quite compromised when a woman goes down the path of psychiatry. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I see plenty of women on, um, psychotropic medications who have major hormone problems. I think there's a connection. Uh, I don't have a research study to support that claim, but I anecdotally, I see it quite frequently. Um, and so a large part of what I do is educating women about their bodies. You'd be surprised once we start going down this path of like, there's progesterone, there's estrogen, there's prolactin, and there's oxytocin if you're if you're nursing your baby. So you've got four mind-altering hormones surging through your bloodstream. If one of those is off, the whole system gets thrown off. And guess what? When you have a hormone imbalance, you get depression, anxiety, insomnia, psychosis, OCD. You get everything that looks like a psych disorder. And then we compound that, don't we, by giving people SSRIs or other psychiatric drugs, which introduce another imbalance into the equation. Yes, which further exacerbate the hormone problem it's it's maddening and so and then of course just a two cents for i do a lot of inner child work with these women we dig into um you know how they were mothered and how that's coming up as their template for mothering and how we can rework that um and and of course you know my 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 deal uh, with people that i work with is healing trauma that's 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 my that's where we go is we heal trauma so hormones, inner child, trauma, and then, of course, just coaching, parent parent coaching kind of thing. I work with husbands. I work with in-law. Whoever will talk to me 
uh, I educate them about hormones and sleep, the importance of sleep and, and not sleep deprivation, you know. So just and nutrition and I, I incorporate anybody within the family unit who will listen to me to bolster up that social support. And it works. It works. Well, it's so important because you often see commercials on television of idealized families where everything is perfect, but the reality is different for so many. And I myself naively assumed that we'd just carry on with our lives and that the new baby would integrate easily within a matter of days or weeks or whatever it might be. But the reality was that we had to change to meet the child's needs. And that was never really discussed at prenatal classes. I had the same, my husband and I had the same experience. I think most new parents do. And um, to some degree, you know, and I've tried to educate pregnant women. And to some degree, it's like you don't want to hear that when you're pregnant. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like you're just not, you really can't. I don't think fully grasp um, the transformation until you're in it. <laughs> but I do think if we had um, a tribe, if we were in a tribal model of a culture, we would be exposed to infants more often and we would just know, you know, we would just instinctually know what a sacrifice it is to be a parent and how much of your own needs have to be put on hold. But, you know, this is the culture we find ourselves in. It is. And Kelly, that feels like a suitable time to move on because I read from your website that you're undertaking a shamanic apprenticeship, which sounds fascinating. And I wondered if you could share with me how you go about doing that. So I've been studying shamanism and the earth-based healing traditions for four years now. And uh, for the past year and a half, I've been in um, an, an apprenticeship um, studying intensely with a, a healer who has studied, uh, you know, lived with the indigenous elders in Peru for 10 years and then lived with Native Americans for five years. So really had access to, to wisdom from the actual culture. And, um, you know, what, one way that I see kind of integrating this into the work that I do with yoga and talk therapy is trying to make these these ancient modalities palatable to the Western mind. What drew me to shamanism was it's very psychological. It's very psychological. It's very, uh, Carl Jung is my favorite psychologist. I love his concepts of the collective unconscious uh, archetypes and myth, things like that, that just deeply resonates with me on a soul level. And um, shamanism is about, it's really at its essence is about returning, returning to a right relationship with nature. Mm. So getting back to the elements of the earth, having gratitude for the earth, respecting and honoring the earth, not just taking from the earth, but giving back to the earth. And really, I mean, if I could summarize it in one way, because I think there is a ton of misinformation about shamanism, especially in America. I don't know how it's perceived in the UK, but in movies and films here in the US, it's very, it's very criticized. It's very misunderstood. You see the shaman with paint on his face and feathers in his hair. And like, that's not always my experience yes there are shamans who practice like that but that's not my experience of all shamanism and so uh, you know the spanish inquisition still has roots <laughs> it's <laughs> this is a healing modality that has literally been on the planet since the beginning of time 
longer than yoga. Yoga has a history of 5,000 years. Shamanism has a history of 40,000 years, at least that we have records of, okay? And there are so many different modalities of it depending on which continent it originates from. Um, but really what it is is creating ceremony that word ritual is kind of scary to people. So I use ceremony, which is what your psyche needs to create order in states of chaos. So we have rituals of going to a psychiatrist, right? We have rituals for Catholicism. Shamanism in Peru is heavily based on Catholicism because the Spanish Inquisition tried to to shut shamanism down in Peru, right? And so instead of disowning their healing modalities, they started um, giving all of their uh, tools um, names of you know of the Catholicism saints, so that they could still practice in hiding. And so it's heavily influenced by Catholicism. And so to use the ritual of Catholicism, right? You you take communion, you get down on your knee, you stand up, right? There's these prescriptive rituals that you go through. Same thing with the psychiatrist. You pick up the phone, you make an appointment, you go into an office, you tell them what's wrong, they give you a prescription, you go fill it, right? That's a ritual, okay? Our culture has lost rituals. So, so medicine, what the, the Western medicine system is our ritual, and we need deeper spirituality than that. And so for me, shamanism is this act of drawing on elements of the earth that are symbols for all of our collective unconscious, making these symbols um, clear to your psyche and working with these symbols. So an example could be a shell from the ocean. The ocean represents water. The element of water represents emotions. So every time I sit in meditation next to a shell, I'm going to tap into my emotions. So that's an example. Uh, it's so simple, but there's a lot of taboo around it. And so what I'm doing to try and work to integrate this into my practice is how can I do it without the feather and the rattle? You know, and that's that's what I'm working on. And it's working and it's amazing. Well, the simple fact is that the human race survived perfectly well for a long time before psychiatric drugs came along. Absolutely. So. Yes. We, tribal cultures, their, their medicine men are the people that we lock up in straitjackets and medicate to the gills. Their psychosis, right? Those are the medicine people. That's where the wisdom comes from the tribe of how to plant your crops for the next year because they're getting visions and hearing voices. And in America, we're so afraid of intuition, we shove it into the recesses and we, we say, no, that's too, no. <laughs> You're not allowed in this culture. Absolutely. Thank you, Kelly. And if people wanted to know more about you and your work, is there a website they can visit? Yes. So my long-term vision, I'm going to do a quick plug for this. Uh, this is my five to 10 year goal is to create an alternative psychiatric hospital. It's likely due to red tape and regulations in the U.S. is going to be more of a residential yoga retreat center to be a safe haven for people who are wanting to withdraw from psychiatric drugs or have a psychotic episode and not be forced to take medication. Um, and so if you want to learn more about my vision, about my modality, my website is organicmentalhealthcenter.com. It's all one word. You can contact me and collaborate with me in that way. Um, I intend to be just one of the, the players 
in a paradigm shift in mental health treatments. And I know that it's going to take a whole team. <laughs> it's going to take an army. And so anybody that wants to collaborate, I, I welcome that. Well, Kelly, I just wanted to say thank you so much because you having witnessed firsthand the limitations of mainstream medicine and looked for alternatives yourself, I think that's so powerful and I'm so pleased that people are out there doing that. Again, you touched on it during our chat. It feels that tinkering around the margins of mental health isn't what we need to do. We probably need to reconceptualize what mental illness is and isn't fundamentally, don't we? Yes, absolutely. And I think it's coming. Mm. I do. You know, it. this is, it's all a part of people becoming empowered to be their own healers. And without, you know, I, as much as I am critical about psychiatry, I consider the pharmaceutical industry and psychiatry to be one of my greatest teachers. Mm. I never would have learned all these amazingly valuable lessons without it. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for being part of the podcast and for sharing your experiences with me. Thank you again for this opportunity. Well, I'm so grateful to Kelly for giving up her time to chat with me for the podcast. And as a reminder, if you'd like to find out more about Kelly and her work, you can visit the website organicmentalhealthcenter.com. Madden America News and Updates. Thank you for listening today. And if you've enjoyed hearing from the wide range of guests that we've had on the podcast over the last few months, please leave us a review in iTunes and also share the podcast on your social media and with family and friends too. The podcast is available to listen to on Madden America, in Apple, iTunes, on Spotify, Google Play Music, YouTube, and many other podcast clients too. So thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.